Ecclesiastes chapter 2, page 553, second in the series. And uh, let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Father, would you speak by your Spirit to needy hearts this morning? In the name of Jesus, amen. So friends, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness." And yet, I perceived, that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all would have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all, which I toiled, and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil of striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is of vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Do please sit down. This fascinating book, Ecclesiastes, 
Strange, strange book to find in the Bible. Why is it there? Well, we're going to find out another reason this morning. Let me begin like this. The sound in the ear was a strange, subhuman growl. It was a monster, perhaps, or a primeval memory of primitive terror. Along with the noise came pictures, flicking a narrative of being chased or failing or falling or nearly dying, all projected on the sleeping mind. Well, with such nightmares, most humans are at some point, either with childhood night terrors or adult angst, inflicted. We wake up in a cold sweat, we say, perhaps remembering the fear of the night, though oftentimes with the bogeyman falling quickly from the consciousness, leaving just a memory of a nightmare. The phenomenon of frightening verbal and visual dreams is an interesting one psychologically, leading many in human history to interpret dreams as saying something, whether in a Freudian or religious or primitive superstitious sense. Well, now, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is telling us that what we think is a dream is really a nightmare. The American dream is of prosperity, safety, family, and opportunity for all. It is a wonderful hope that has been held out to many an immigrant. But what this passage this morning is, in a sense, telling us is that even such beautiful dreams as these, whether expressed by Martin Luther King, I have a dream, or in any other way, these human aspirations and ideals, these dreams of ours, without God, are nightmares. Life at its best without God is, strangely enough, in some ways, worse. Why? For the very sweetness of success is made bitter by the irony of its inevitable end. All good things must come to an end, and even then, good things without God turn sour. See, it is with this sort of experiment that the Kohelet, the teacher, the professor, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, as it is traditionally uh, translated, this kind of experiment with which he is engaged. He is, you see, the most successful man imaginable. He has everything we could ever want, and then some. He is living the dream. And yet, without God, it's actually, he says, a nightmare. Now, there are three key phrases in this passage which unlock this its intention. First, I said in my heart. Now, you'll find that phrase in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Sometimes this phrase, as in the previous chapter of verse 16, a, a reference to the heart in speaking can sometimes mean simply saying something to yourself. But here, though, I think there's a switch in the context to emphasize it a little bit more. I said in my heart. It's like now he's uh, switching to, if you like, an Einstein thought experiment. 
This great mind here, and he is a great mind, is delving into his psychology and testing it and feeling it out. He's going to do some very real and concrete things. He's not just sitting in his armchair thinking. He's out there doing. But the point is that this thought in the heart, this testing of himself, is intended to be a conscious observation of his internal processes in the midst of these experiments about the good life. And so, of course, he embraces pleasure from the rowdy partying kind to the great project building sort to the amassing of harem sensual, sexual, legacy building pleasure. It's all, there's this repeated emphasis in the Hebrew, for myself, for himself, over and over again. He's testing how it feels. Is he really happy? When he just lives in every way completely for himself, doing whatever turns him on, be it hamming it up at a party, drugs or alcohol, women, wine and song, or building great architectural phenomenons, all for myself, an experiment in the results of utter selfish success. He's feeling it out, testing it out. That's what it means uh, when it says about his experiment with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He's not a prude. He, He tested it out, but it was a deliberate experiment to see whether doing whatever turned him on really made him happy or not. I said in my heart, let's try this for me, just for me, and see whether that makes me happy. What a common attitude today. I need some time just for me. I need to do this for me. Does that make you happy? Then he thought in his heart something else, another thought experiment, psychological observation as to whether it made him happy. So verse 12, so I turned uh, to consider wisdom. Now his thoughts, this Observation of its effects on the soul and my state of joy or happiness are about the intellectual achievements, about this. He is, again, verse 15, I said in my heart, that's what's going on, a thought experiment, an observation of the influences of this, this time, intellectual achievement. Now, he stated before in the previous chapter, this does not satisfy, but now he's going to be thorough. He's going to try it out. Does being a mega brain really make you happy? That's another common attitude today. Education is so important. Parents will give anything, some of them, to get a good education for their child. Does it really make you happy? So he tries that, he observes that, he has a go at that. Then he tried work It's a thought experiment, an observation that's going on. If you've ever been to a Shakespeare play and the guy stops and does what is called a soliloquy, it's that kind of thing that's going on. He's expressing the internal processes of his mind. He's put himself on the couch. He's letting it all hang out, man. So we can see what this is really like through his experiment. How about work? 
How about getting a million or two or three? Does that make you happy? So his heart began to despair, verse 20. Now then, each of these experiments from verse 1 to verse 11, verse 12 to verse 16, verse 17 to verse 26, are psychological explorations of what it's like to live the best life imaginable. And of course, he says it's not very good. And that, of course, is surprising. After all, we're so fortunate in this country. We have so many opportunities There are other places in the world where this kind of achievement will be possible to very few. Are we to complain about all these good things? That's not what's going on. This is not a depressive complaint. It's a clear, careful examination as to whether pleasure of any and every kind, brains of great and good kind, work of successful and prosperous kind, really makes you happy? And his answer is that it does not. Well, why not? Well, now, here we come to the next key that unlocks the door to the secrets of this passage. It's like a door with three keyholes in it. Each needs to be turned to get inside. It's the second key phrase, under the sun. Someone once came up to me after preaching and said, Pastor Moody, I love your preaching, but before I could get swollen-headed, added, with your accent, I could listen to you read the phone book. (laughs) And if that is the case, it's good news, because some of this stuff may now get a little technical. But if we're to understand at all the message of this great book, Ecclesiastes, and its answer to atheism, as I want us to do this morning... We need to get to grips with some of these key ideas. So, under the sun. Now, that is a phrase that occurs frequently throughout this book, but especially often in this chapter. So, this is the correct place to try and get it right and see what it means for today. And you'll see it there in verse 11. Can you see it there? There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Then again in verse 17. So, I hated life. This is in some ways a conclusion to his psychological experiment. This is where it gets him as he lies there on the self-imposed couch. He's almost suicidal. I hated life. Why? Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. Once more, verse 18, I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun. Then verse 19, I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Verse 20, All the toil of my labors under the sun. And finally, verse 22, what is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? So it's clearly a key concept for him. What does it mean? After all, why should being under the sun be such a bad thing? We spend a lot of time trying to get more under the sun. We travel south in the winter to get under the sun. We We make sun lamps so that when we can't get under the sun naturally, we can still get under the effects of the sun in terms of what it would otherwise do to our suntan. We even find, some of us, life when we're not under the sun difficult. Uh, Some people finding winter months in Chicago especially hard. We, We seem to respond emotionally far better once we are under the sun. So what is he talking about? Well, some have said that he's talking about life without reference to God. Uh, 
And there must be some truth in that in some sense. Yet we need to go a bit deeper. For there are many references to God in this book, occasionally a way that changed the feelings and make life better, of course, but sometimes without any change or even making things a little more intense or strange, all the burden that God has given us, for instance, he says, in various ways at various times. So it's not just simply life without reference to the existence of God, but life without experience of the presence of God. It is under the sun in the sense of God just being up there, not down here with me and you. See, you can believe in God and still be living life under the sun. There can be no encounter in that sense with God under the sun. You may pray, but you just say your prayers by rotes without any experience of God's presence with you in your heart. There is an absence of God. That's the issue, not the existence of God, but the absence of God. And this then is not either just a matter of Ecclesiastes being in the Old Testament. There were many great and Good saints in the Old Testament who did not live in this sense under the sun. David knew God personally. He spoke with him. He knew him in his heart. Read the Psalms. David had a personal connection with God in his own life. So did Abraham. So did all the real believers of the Old Testament. This is not a matter of salvation history, as it is technically called, but a matter of experience, that the real God who does exist to be experienced and therefore believed. Now, of course, that is theological. God, the real true God of the Bible, is both absolutely transcendent and imminent. And His desire is to know us and for us to know Him, to walk with Him, as it were, once again in the Garden of Eden. And there is, you see, in Scripture, held out to you this morning, this possibility of connection with the presence of God and His love through the gospel. You see, we are not to be deists who say that God exists, but He's so much up there that we can't really know Him. Nor are we to be pantheists who say God exists, but He's just a part of life and I'm a part of God. Nor are we to be cold theists who affirm the truths of God's transcendence and imminence but don't experience it. We are to be believers, people of the Spirit of the law, not the letter, who are Christians, who have the Spirit of God within us and for whom life under the sun is no longer really under the sun, because the Son of God has taken up residence in our hearts. Now, as I say, that's a bit more heavy lifting in terms of thinking, but it's absolutely crucial for our spiritual development that we get this right, not just so we understand Ecclesiastes in some intellectual sense, but hear its message for our time. You see, how many of us invest all our energy in pleasure, in intellect, in money, work, and then are we surprised when it feels pointless, even though we keep some semblance of faith in God? 
Well, we're living as if we are just under the sun. We're not living transcendentally with a connection with God developed each day. It's not just, oh yeah, read your Bible, say your prayers, come to church. It's, don't you realize that God is what life is about? That nothing else has meaning besides Him or without Him? That He is the only source of real and lasting joy? See, so many of our questions about God or fears of invasive politics or legalistic morality come down in the end to a very basic misunderstanding at this point. God does not want us to live under the sun. He wants us to live with Him personally in relationship and everything else flows from that godliness, joy, life, power, desire, all come from a real connection with Him. And the motivation here in Ecclesiastes, this chapter, is that nothing else, let me say it again, nothing else gives it. Under the sun, you see, everything in this world is covered by that description. Nothing is left out. You can try it all. Only God above the sun makes life worth living. Then we get passionate for God. Then we have less issues with our identity, our sexuality, or our fears of becoming this or being made to do that. It's all about God and our connection with Him, this personal relationship with the living Lord of the universe. Well, now, the third key to unlock the door to the message of this chapter of the Bible is this, death. I like collecting deathbed anecdotes. Uh, Woody Allen's is perhaps most well-known. I don't want to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. He also said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. As a pastor, I have the privilege of being at people's deathbeds. I say it is a privilege, for we will all be there one day, whether in the sanitized environment of a hospital, at home, or more suddenly and unexpectedly facing the final curtain call. I've seen people face death with what can only amount to a miraculous connection with God. I remember one lady who was unable to speak by this time, but whose son was convinced she could understand and was speaking into her ear truth affection and memory constantly as she lay with the shallow breathing of the almost dead. And I suggested we should pray, and with the whole family we held hands around the old lady's deathbed like a chain, connected together with her and prayed. Somehow I knew she could hear, and I knew she could understand, and I knew she was grateful, and that she felt ready to go to be with her Lord I remember one of the old members of the church. I went to visit her at her deathbed and talked to her about various things. She was a dear, sweet old lady. I shared with her as we chatted like old friends some concerns I had. I'll never forget her looking to me and saying some words of encouragement to me and me realizing that there was this lady on her deathbed ministering 
to me. May my end be like hers, so confident in the resurrection of Christ and my resurrection in Him that I can look death in the eye, the final enemy without fear and rejoicing at finally meeting my Lord face to face. But what if you do not have that confidence? Well, then death is the final irony. This is the point here, you see. Look at verse 11. So he's experienced all these pleasures of every imaginable kind, sexual as well as physical, and partied with the best of them. Then it was a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun, for all went, disappeared in the face of death. The same with the mind. It's better to be wise than foolish, of course, as Ecclesiastes tells us in verses 14 and 15. But whether you are brilliant or stupid, both will die. The same event happens to all of them. Uh, Verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. Similarly with possessions, you pile it all up. And then, he says, you have to leave it to someone else. And you have no idea whether they're going to waste it or not or appreciate it or not. And so what? He must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it, verse 21. So it is the final chilling irony that the great and the good end up in the same place as the poor and the foolish. And so what difference does it make? What motivation is there to do anything well or badly at all, he asks. Well, some would say the teacher of Ecclesiastes has an answer for that, and he does, but they will look for that at the end of, chapter, of this chapter in verses 24 and, uh, through to 26. And there you can see he basically says that we should be content and treat God's provisions and opportunities not as things to strive after, but as gifts from him and act in that way and have that attitude. Now, that's good homespun wisdom, and there is much to enjoy in this life because God is a good creator giving his gifts to all. Yet even this, Ecclesiastes actually concludes, is also vanity and a striving after wind. Certainly, of course, he realizes, given the reality of death, this contentment, this joy, this lack of striving for more and more, not being able to sleep at night to buy a better car, you know. This is the right way to go. But in the face of the final irony, not, not a small town in Idaho, but a bitter, nearly humorous pill to swallow, you know, in the face of death, even that way of living is, of course, ultimately completely pointless unless you are a Christian. How come Christians don't live like that? Well, one, the Old Testament itself teaches us that there is an eternity to come. This is not only a New Testament doctrine, though it is more confident and certain there because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but a little later Ecclesiastes himself will say God has set eternity in our hearts. And Job says in the famous words often read at a funeral that he knows that his Redeemer lives and that after death he will ever live to see him. The Psalms talk of eternal life and Jesus when asked whether the Old Testament taught the doctrine of the resurrection, said that when the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it means that they are alive in His presence, for God is not the God of the dead but the living. 
2, the New Testament claims the confident certainty of our resurrection with Jesus on the basis of the apostolic testimony of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So we know that when we are at home in the body, as Paul writes, we are away from the Lord. And when we are away from the body, we will be at home with the Lord. We are to comfort each other with such words. Three, this means that Christians at funerals, at death beds, do indeed mourn, for death is a wrong and evil and the final enemy, but they do not mourn as the world does without hope. For they know that the real believer in Jesus will die to go to be with the Lord. Death. It's probably my upbringing, but when I think of death, I think of Monty Python. Uh, They have a sketch, perhaps you've seen it, about the angel of death coming to a dinner party. And, And people not quite wanting to go, you know. Have a cup of coffee first or whatever it was. Or perhaps even more ironically, them singing their well-known song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, but singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Death at one of their members' funerals. This sort of attempt to whistle in the wind of death and be content with what we have in spite of this final irony. There is that attitude There is that attitude of religious uncertainty and mourning without the confident hope that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we who are in him will also rise from the dead. Without that confidence, mourns and weeps rightly enough, but does not have the true biblical certainty of joy and hope in the face of death. And then I think of those simple Christian deathbeds that I have been privileged to minister at and their faces and their joy in the midst of the suffering. And I realize that Ecclesiastes is a statement of what life without God, in the sense not of knowing about Him or believing the creeds or being brought up as a Christian, But life without dynamic interaction with him on a daily basis. What life without God is like. And it stinks. It hurts. And no amount of pleasure or success can fill the void left by the absence of God. If you doubt me, think of death. What do you have to say about that? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we do have a word to say about death. And it is, he is risen. Father, we praise you for that. And I pray that the light of that hope would shed beams of comfort and warmth upon every true follower of you this morning that they will realize that living above the sun, they have the secret to life that many other people are missing. And they will rejoice with it that they no longer live under the sun. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who are working through these issues and thinking about them. I pray that the experiment that uh, the Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, the teacher, the preacher did, where he tried everything and found that without God it was pointless, 
I pray that experiment would ring true in their hearts by your Spirit, and they would be saved to live a life of true meaning in fellowship with you above the Son. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.